Got it. Hi, friends, fellow evolvers and curious people everywhere. Welcome to this episode of Being with Sally Wilson. I'm Sally Wilson, and I have with me as a very exceptional special guest today, Karen Brooks. Welcome, Karen. Oh, thank you, Sally. Thanks so much for having me. And I know probably as I said that stuff, because you're just that kind of you're that kind of girl, saying that you're exceptional and extraordinary is probably very uncomfortable for you. But let me just give listeners and watchers an indication of why I say that. Um, apart from the fact that this woman is incredibly humble, <laughs> she's also a best-selling author, has been a columnist, had a, um, a military career, um, an academic career. Goodness, what else? You've been described by many different people in the most extraordinary terms as well, Karen, and I've read some of those descriptions. <laughs> Can you just give us some indication of how all the different facets of your career and life so far have kind of come into being and, and happened? Yeah, it's sort of strange, isn't it? I never planned to, you know, have this kind of career and it sort of was organic in one way, sort of, you, you could say it evolved, maybe it devolved. <laughs> Who knows? But, um, I basically all my life wanted to be an actress as a young woman and didn't get into NIDA, uh, which, I, which is the big uh, National Institute of Dramatic Art in Sydney, and as a consequence uh, joined the army, probably, well, to please my father really. Uh -huh. So I was an officer for um, five years and left when I had children because back then you weren't really encouraged to stay. That's all changed now, thank goodness. Mm. And realised I had no qualifications and nothing to recommend me except motherhood <laughs> and wife, I guess, and I wanted a bit more than that. So I went back to uni and found I loved it. So I, I had tried uni on for size when I was younger and didn't suit. So um, I liked it so much I stayed, got a PhD and ended up being an academic for 20, 25 years. And as an academic, part of what you do is write. They say publish or perish. And, of course, to be published, you have to write something. Yeah. So I was doing what you do as part of your career as well as teach, which is to research and write in your area. And I think I need to feed the creative side of my brain. I, it wasn't enough to just you know, nurture the, I guess, the, the, the knowledge side, though creativity is knowledge too. But um, also I think it was an awareness that you spend years writing a piece that's maybe 5,000 words in some obscure academic journal and three people read it. And I needed to do something a bit more than that. So I was also writing for a newspaper at the same time, which I loved. And I love the discipline of that. It's very different mm -hmm. to academic writing, broader audience, immediate feedback, some yeah. of it really challenging mm. and um, began writing creatively. And um, so they were side by side. They weren't one after the other. I think mm. people forget that lots of people do that. We don't, we're not just one thing. We're complex and we often do many, many things simultaneously. And I certainly did professionally quite a few yeah. things. So, yeah. and in the end, writing took over. Yeah. Yeah. I. So you say it, it's, it's taken over. Now you've been a successful author for 20 years. And um, your, your books often, I mean, I've, I've looked at a lot of the characters in your books and it's, it seems to me um, that a lot of them are women challenging the norm. Um, can you just speak to that a little bit? Sure. Um, it, yeah, the historical fiction, well, I wrote historical fantasy to start with, but then the historical fiction 
And one of the biggest fictions about history and particularly about women in history is that they didn't challenge the norms. They didn't, they weren't, well, they weren't present in history. You know, for years and years and years, we know history is written by the victors. Well, the victors in this instance was also patriarchy and men. You know, women were denied access to education. Um, they, they weren't able to be in the public sphere in really any way for centuries. Mm. So their voices are often absent, but just because their voices were absent doesn't mean they weren't present and they didn't contribute. And, of course, um, as an academic, I was learning more and more about that. I'm, I'm, I'm a feminist and very happy to say that. It's funny, for a while there it became the new F word, and I think mm-hmm. it's been grossly maligned and misunderstood. Um, but I'm a feminist and I was very interested in women's contribution and um, to history, to society. So um, when I started writing history, I particularly was interested in women's roles. And yes, women, I guess, forging their own paths, which really means being able to make choices. And for centuries, women weren't allowed to make their own choices, even though some did. And um, I think that in the careers that I had, particularly the early careers, they were very male-dominated environments too. Yes. So, you know, it might be easy to think that in some ways um, the experiences were similar to those in the past, and they were, and yet I chose those careers, and that's the difference. I was free as a woman to make choices to go into the army, to become an academic, um, to do other things. And, yes, I hit glass ceilings, I hit walls, I came across men who felt women had no place being there. But um, I certainly didn't experience what women of the past did. Um, sorry, now I've lost track of the question. No, sorry. no, that's all right. We love tangents here. But, and, and also a lot of women of the present, depending on um, where people are living and um, totally. the sorts of um, cultures that they're living in. Yeah. Um, so, we, yes, we, we are very fortunate well, that's right. Women are yet. still denied choices. You're right. You've mm-hmm. got to look at that. There's a whole range of things about economic situation. And in fact, a lot of my books focus on women's economic empowerment. Mm. Um, that's still a, a, a great reality for many women today, but also religion, um, cultural backgrounds, colour of their skin even. Yeah. And I remember watching a program the other day on, um, I, I, can I say where it was? Prime, you know, one of the streaming yep. services. And it's fabulous, actually. It's Jack Ryan, which I really like. I like the action adventure stuff. But a character in that says geography is destiny. Mm. And um, another character mocks him for saying that. But I actually thought it was really profound. And there's yeah. such a truth to that. One has to only look at what's happening over in, you know, Iran and, and Syria, but even America with the laws that have recently been overturned and um, the, the abortion laws, you know. Yes. So, yes, you're right. Women are still having choices taken from them or mm. were never given them in the first place. So even though I write history, I find it, it resonates in ways I wish it didn't today. Yeah, I know this, you know, something Ruth Bader Ginsburg said, and I'm going to completely mess this up now, but she, effectively she was saying she doesn't expect special treatment. She would just ask that the boot be lifted from her neck, the, the foot be lifted from her neck so mm. that she can yeah, so that she can be um, as free as as men are um, and men were in her situation. Yeah. Yeah, and, and there's a real truth to that too. But I think mm. too, you know, and certainly in my books and certainly in my own life, I've also worked alongside 
decent human beings, male and female, yes. that have shared their knowledge, shared their ability to raise you, mm. you know, and elevate you um, to be a better person, a better worker, better in your profession. And, you know, I think I owe a lot what I've accomplished, if, if they are indeed accomplishments, is, is due to those people, you know. Yeah. You do really stand on the shoulder of giants and I think their sex doesn't matter sometimes. Um, I have this rule that... Um, I don't care where you're from, what your sex is or anything. Just don't be an ass, you know. <laughs> be, be, be a kind person, you know. Then I'll let you into my life, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. And you touched on uh, women's economic or financial empowerment, mm. um, you know, with with the sort of work, some of the sort of work that I do. I, I see um, money often used as a, as a means of control. Mm. Um could you just talk to that a little bit? Because I think so often that creeps into relationships. It's a, often a part of people's conditioning to the point where they don't notice it. That's so true. And um, particularly, again, in the past where women didn't have the right to work and earn. Well, actually, they did work. They've always worked, you know, whether it was within the domestic sphere, but very often they helped in businesses. But even to this day and age, I've had my own experience of that to a degree. I, I, um, I really have to be careful how I talk about this, but um, in my first marriage, um, there was, uh, I had a lot of, um, uh, what, how do I put it? I guess, yeah, a lot of um, power taken away from mm. me or choice taken away from me. And one of those was economic choices. And uh, I was made to really feel that. And I know when I was a single mother and I can really empathize with lots of single parents out there and how hard it is. Mm -hmm. And the, the stigma that's still attached to single parenthood, whether it's as a consequence of a failed relationship or through choice, there is still stigma attached to it. And I think now, you know, that there are still genuine struggles and people that rely on the government for assistance too, the way they're labelled and stigmatised is just appalling. And, mm. um, you know, and then again, that falls upon the children too, often in these situations as well. So um, this is something that's still ongoing and really needs to change. And, and it's quite terrifying when you read through history what happened. And I think, you know, if a woman from, say, the 1400s, 1600s, whatever, could suddenly appear today and she'd be astonished and, and, and in total wonderment at what's going on, but I think deeply saddened that there was still so much that hadn't, hadn't changed, hadn't altered. Mm, well, that just gave me goosebumps. Yeah. So, Karen, you... you put yourself out there and your opinions out there. And certainly when you're, you know, writing columns and all that sort of stuff and on TV, you know, you've put yourself out there and, um, and you have dared to challenge, um, to question, publicly question stuff that's going on. Um, and I'm really curious, firstly, whether you feel fear when you're considering um, expressing your opinions or in the past when you've considered expressing your opinions? Um, and if so, how you have, I guess, stepped forward anyway? What, what, your, what your relationship with, with fear is? Because, you know, we, we touched on just in our introduction just how strongly people have described you. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> Yeah, uh, I know. <laughs> uh, uh, in, in ways that I would consider actually unkind, inappropriate, horrible. Um, so how do you deal with that? 
Yeah, I'll just add to that. I've had death threats and everything. I mean, some people will be listening going, Karen, who? <laughs> <laughs> I wrote I wrote for a major masthead for 18 years. So, um, yeah, and I was on TV a lot. You're right. And I, I was afraid all the time. I was fearful. What I was fearful of more than anything was not being taken seriously. Mm. And um, But I forced myself to stand up. And one of the reasons that I did that was because I only ever commented on things I felt I was qualified to comment on. Right. If, if someone, if I was asked to comment on something that I had no knowledge about, I would redirect the, the media person, whoever, to someone who I felt was eminently more qualified than me. Yeah. My yeah. biggest fear was that someone who had no qualifications or no experience or no knowledge and again, just because you've experienced something doesn't necessarily mean you're knowledgeable about it. You're knowledgeable about yes. it from your own perspective. Um, academics try to look at the bigger picture. So I like I like to think that's what I was doing. Um, so I was always fearful, but um, I think you just forge ahead. You you um, you just go ahead. I'll tell you a little a little something though. I get terrible nerve rashes always. Even now, I have one. So I usually always wear high neck clothing when when I was on TV, when I appeared in public or on TV, you wear lots of makeup. So the makeup person would often, if I had a bit of a low, lower neckline, would um, do my decolletage, you know, to hide any of the burn that would appear. And I know lots of people that fear that. Now, I'm not saying I'm a hero. What I'm going to say, I'm thinking about people who show, demonstrate real courage and bravery. Um, they're always feel fear. And that's the definition of a hero or heroine, isn't it? It's someone who feels fear but forges on nonetheless and usually usually selflessly. Mm. Um, commenting isn't courageous or anything. You do put yourself out there. And, yes, I've been called so many things, some of them um, really terrible. And as I said, mm. I've received death threats. I used to have things sent to me in the mail um, that where they cut out my column out of a newspaper and they defaced it so angrily they'd torn it but they still saw fit to put in an envelope with a stamp. Now, I've kept some of those things. I've kept some of the emails. I also received some nice ones, but um, I crashed websites because of my <laughs> people responding. Some of the more fun things I was called was a six-foot-two transvestite Sheila on national television. Um, my response to that was, well, I'm only five-foot-ten. <laughs> but... And also a left-wing loopy academic with no testosterone. And they were the lightest sort of things that members of the public would feed back. But um, you have to do it. You, you, I was given a platform that very few, it was a privilege and it was humbling. Mm, mm. And so I tried to do it with integrity and honesty and not for the publicity. Yes. And But I do worry sometimes now that that's not what's happening. And I worry about... Um, opinion being offered as expertise yes um and I think there look everyone's entitled to their opinion it doesn't make you right yeah and yeah. um and not that academics or people who you know have have spent years in a particular profession and are well qualified to comment on it aren't always right either but I'd rather someone like that than someone who's just you know holding quickly because they're a celebrity or maybe a journalist who covers lots of stories and asked to give their expert yeah. opinion on something that there, there, I guess there is expert opinion and there's opinion but again there's often the mm. lines very blurry and I've I've found that um I mean the, the sort of the, the public <laughs> attention I've received is much less than you have um but in the in this it's sort of during my um opera career you know every now and again you'd find out that the person doing the reviews 
came straight across from the culinary department (laughs) and actually didn't know anything about music or, you know, and, um, and so I learned very quickly not, not to take the good ones or the bad ones seriously. And interestingly, what, what I found is that the people who really knew a lot were humble and kind. They, they may have had some criticism, um, but it was an, it was expressed in a considerate way because they knew how hard it is they get it yeah Yeah, it's constructive criticism there is such a thing as constructive criticism I mean you see it as an author because um reviewers and Mm. everybody now can review and and put it out there on various platforms and I really value what they have to say but some people are really unkind and cruel they'll Mm. find one typo in your book so they'll write it off not understanding that many many eyes have looked at that book and you just don't see that error. And I hate hate it when that happens. And yes, yeah. they're right, that error is there, but you don't need to dismiss, you know, two years' work on the basis of one spelling error or typo probably. And you're right. And and the the people who are writers of, of any ilk are often much kinder and generous and very constructive and helpful in their criticism. I, I review books and I refuse to review one. I, I don't like because that's personal taste usually. Mm. So I try to only review books that I really find entertaining and across a, or, or interesting or challenging across a range of genres and try to only see the positive in them. And that's because from experience, I know it can crush you, those yeah. negative reviews. And you're right, you shouldn't look at them. But, but you know, I have my agent, my pu- publisher <laughs> saying, don't, don't read the reviews. I mean, fortunately, they're mostly good. But do you remember those? No, you remember the one asshole who wrote the really awful review. And it doesn't matter how many people take you to heart and love it. You just remember their scathing, cruel words that are often yeah. personal too, you know. Yeah, yeah. Oh, absolutely. I remember seeing um, Brené Brown interviewed or something and she was talking about um, comments made on on her, you know, the original you, uh, TED Talk, I guess, that went viral. Yes, yes. And um, and exactly that. There were all these positive ones, but she remembers the horrible negative um, comment on her weight. And uh, it was just, um, you're, you're right. They're the ones that kind of stick with us. I know. Um, I'm so glad I'm not on TV anymore. I mean, I was still being asked even a couple of years later for various reasons I gave it, or health reasons, actually, I gave away my academic career and um I, I was diagnosed with cancer and um, had a very bad uh, health for quite a few years. I'm still coming out of it, but mm. I am coming out of it. Um, yeah. And I just couldn't do it. I, I just wasn't able to anymore. And I often look at men and women today, but particularly women and how easy it is now to, to lash out and respond so quickly to something. But it's usually about, particularly with women, their their appearance, what, what Brené Brown was saying, her weight, her, what her outfit she's wearing. So I don't know why people think that's appropriate or helpful or, or it's so unkind. Um, and even when they're pr- maybe saying, oh, she's beautiful or she's this or she's that, again, I think that person would rather you comment on the content of what or, or, or the job they've done, not the way they appear. And, um, yeah, it's really interesting that that still happens. It's happened, again, for centuries that people have 
commented in the ways they could about women's appearances, mm. it still happens. It's, it's again, it's, it reduces our value to a particular it, aesthetic thing. Yeah. Absolutely. And it's just kind of, it's just sort of, <laughs> it's bizarre when mm. you think that it's the one thing we don't have control over. I mean, yeah, sure, we can, you know, choose crazy haircuts and stuff like that, but um, we look how we look. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, whereas it's the rest of the expression of us that, that shows who we are. Well, our way of being, you know, it, it is far more important. And I really feel, particularly for young women who are so influenced by, you know, social media, Instagram, TikTok, all those things, and, and they have all these impressions of what's valued and important in a woman. And again, you know, it's really incumbent upon older generations to demonstrate through what, how they perform, I guess, mm. how they are in the world, mm. that there's a lot more to being a decent human being than just how you look. Mm. And let's face it, in the end, if we're lucky enough to live a long life, we all pretty much start to look the same. It's, it's who, how we are and how we treat others that, that's remembered yeah. and um, is a point of difference, you know. I think Ash Barty is an extraordinary oh. example of that. Yeah. Um, uh, just being a good human being um, and, and stating it, you know, publicly so everyone got it. It's yeah. more important to be a good human being than it is to be a good tennis player. <laughs> totally, totally. She, she's a, a wonderful role model. Mm. And you know, there are so many out there. That's exactly mm. it. You know, there's so many great role models out there and many of them are very big public people like Grace Tame and, and, and you know, just, just marvellous role models. And, yeah. I, and Greta Thunberg, you know, I, I, have a, I have a girl crush on all of them. You know, I just yeah. think they're wonderful. Yeah. And, and how they keep going. Now, that's, that's courage. They work through fear. Mm. And fear of failure, I, I would suggest, might be their, their biggest one, their, their biggest fear too. Yeah, just yeah. listening. So I'm a bit of a tennis fan and um, listening to one of the commentators last night talk about once you can overcome the fear of failure, then you're free to play your best tennis. And I can absolutely relate to that in, in my own career, yeah. fear of failure, fear. And, and for some people, failure is not being perfect. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> or not being the best. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> That's right. It's all relative, isn't it? Yeah. All relative. Yeah. Yeah. It's all, failure is, is hitting, you know, one unforced error. Well, hello. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't matter yeah. how good you are. A, a, a close friend introduced me to to a new word that she'd discovered or been told called flawsome. Flawsome? Oh, I love it. I love it. That's the flawed and awesome. Yep. Yeah, my, my um, <laughs> hubby has this term where he says a perfect imperfection. Yeah. And just like being flawsome. <laughs> that's, that's beautiful. Yeah. I, um, the book I'm writing at the moment, um, there's a line in it where um, a young female writer talks about an older female writer who mentored her and says she taught me to try and fail, try again and fail, you know, <laughs> but also succeed, of course, because by the, this time this writer has had her successes too. But it's, again, that thing of not being afraid of, of failing. And when, when we allow that to fell us, to stop us, then everyone else is one. All those who don't believe in us, all those who are, you know, sending those awful tweets or messages or whatever and telling us we're hopeless, we're useless, we're ugly, we're fat, whatever, whatever, mm. you know, they think, well, those barbs that will stick, then they've won. So, um, and, and you know, we, we have to keep trying. And I think even in any profession, the most successful are those people who, who 
work through failure and allow it to teach them not not to do make the same mistakes again though I was reading I found I discovered a new word and I'm not going to remember it but you might about the children of celebrities who get the leg up what's the word again uh I don't know that's within uh oh does it start with n a neep a nope or something I can't remember is it related to nepotism yeah yeah a nepo a nepo all right. Okay. Yes. Yes. A nepo. A nepo. The child of a celebrity who's been given a leg up. So whether it's a, a a child of a model, of an actor, of a musician, you name it. You know, someone who's been given that leg up. And there's been a bit of a backlash against the children. These nepos. You know? <laughs> and some of them have 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 hit back by acknowledging, yes, we did get maybe entree into this field in a way that's denied to others. But, hell, we're also still working. And I think they're really respected and appreciated because it's still talent that will keep them there. They might get in the door, but it's talent that will keep them there. But those that are denying that um, their parents' status didn't give them that that leg up, they're, they're, they're copying a backlash. Yeah, and, and, you know, I can imagine where that's coming from too. Um, yeah you know, fear of actually not being enough. and um, <clears throat> But, you know, love plays a good role too, and I think we have to remember that too. And um, and I'd be lying if I didn't say luck played a role in a lot of what I've done as well. And um, I, I read books by self-published authors and I can't understand how some, some I do, so how they're not published. They've mm. really worked the book, they've, it had it professionally edited. The story's fantastic. And I can imagine it crossing the desk of a publisher and it's just not the right time. Mm. They're, they're, it's, it, that genre isn't starring on the world literary stage at the moment. So it's pushed aside. And I feel really feel for those people because in, you know, three months later, if it had appeared, it might be picked yeah. up and be a bestseller. And it's the same with actors that or, or performers that audition for a particular role. They're just not quite the right uh, look or the tone or the the the, the wrong you know voice for yeah. it and so luck does play a huge role it's yeah it, it, luck I find it such an interesting concept such an interesting word I mean when I'm just thinking about the nepos <laughs> um you know if I look back at what what steered me towards music well you you could call it luck the whole way um, you know, luck that in my small country town, there happened to be a headmaster who valued music. There happened to be a woman who was qualified, who taught music and who wanted to give up her lunch times to teach choir. And, you know, you can sort of see where one thing led to a next, but led to the next. But it's also um, like you said earlier, Karen, how you you haven't sort of consciously thought well I'm going to do this and then I'm going to do this and then you've kind of let yourself um move with what was happening and make your make your choices accordingly haven't you um yeah so there's a part of me that thinks you know those those people who don't get the roles or don't get published and I can relate to all of that well, <laughs> you yeah, know, yeah me too I can relate to it yeah, you know yeah. there's a part of me that thinks hmm maybe that just isn't where they're meant to go and I um and again it's just a bit of a philosophical kind of um call it woo-woo if you like but I, I don't know there's just a sense well perhaps their their path is somewhere else or that's an important part of their path is actually what we see as the rejection or the lack of success or whatever it is yeah I know I hear 
I hear what you're saying. And I hear also that, um, you know, when we say you've got to make your own luck, mm. um, you, well, what that means really is you've got to put yourself in the right situations and work at what you want, you know. And, um, I mean, I get really frustrated with some of the platitudes like, oh, they didn't dream hard enough or just dream it and you'll be it. No, that's bullshit, yeah. you know. Um, you've got to work at something and you've got to work hard and take it seriously you know it just won't magically rain and fall on you and you, you know yes I did my careers did evolve but I also put myself in the right situation for those things to happen and encountered the right people for you yes school was lucky because you couldn't control who was your teacher or headmaster and that was fortuitous or luck <laughs> but I know that um and I was lucky uh when I returned to uni as a matured student one of my lecturers happened to be a fabulous medieval historian who later went to become Australia's leading fantasy novelist and we became really close friends and she was my inspiration my aspiration but also just a really good human being and we loved each other dearly she, she and and you know I credit a lot of where I am now because of her not because she she forged the path that I then trod is the way to put it you know um yeah. she didn't open doors for me necessarily though there probably was a little bit of that too um mm. and and shoved me through it um because I kept saying I'm going to write a novel I'm going to write a novel and one day she got so fed up with me she said I'll stop saying you're gonna and just do it and best ah. advice I, I ever got and um yeah so I, I I am a great believer in working hard for something and being resilient when you do have those rejections and that's where the dreaming and the believing comes into it. Believe in yourself, hone your talents, turn to experts that can help you sharpen them, mm. do those courses, talk to people in the profession you want to go into or that have, have the experiences that you think you want to have too and learn from the masters and mistresses. You know? um, yeah. yeah, gather, gather the knowledge and, and the expertise towards you. Yeah, it's in it, that striving for excellence is is of huge satisfaction itself, isn't it? The um, the sense of mastery of something, or and and the striving, just the the the, the um, I was going to say the act of the attitude of striving, um, but it's also you know for so many high achievers and people who do strive it's kind of letting go of all the baggage and the loading and the burdens and the, I'm not good enough and I'm never good enough and blah, 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 blah. Letting go of that so you can actually enjoy it. <laughs> right? You know, it's funny you should say that, Sally, because I, I inadvertently, without meaning to do what happened, tweeted something, no, Insta something yesterday, and it goes on my uh, official, fam, uh, official Facebook page as well, the author page. And what it was was a girlfriend in Sydney who's really lovely and very successful in her own right saw my book, my last book on a staff pick uh, shelf in a, a bookshop in um, Leichhardt in Sydney. And she's kindly sent it to me. And I was feeling so down about the book I'm currently copy editing, to, copy editing which comes out later this year, for various reasons. And um, I mean, I love it with a passion. And I'm so afraid of failing my readers, you know, that they're not going to love it. And just starting to think it's crap. I, I find I get, I get quite crippled by self-doubt. And it was such a pick-me-up to get her little message and the photos. And I said, can I please put these up on social media? And she said, sure. So I wrote something like just when I was feeling down and thinking my book was crap, my next book was crap, look what look what my darling friend sent me. And all these people started saying, oh, how can you think your books are crap and how can you think this and how can you think that? And they were really 
lovely and said really affirming things. But I was embarrassed because I thought I didn't mean for it to be some big revelation. I just, that's how I mostly feel. (laughs) And what was funny was other writers said, oh, my God, you feel that way too after all Mm. the books you've written? Mm. Yes, because I still haven't got mastery. And I often feel I'm still learning. And that's why I feel I don't have the right one really to judge other people's books. I either enjoy them or I, I, at varying, Mm. varying levels or I don't. I well, my agent won't allow me to read other people's manuscripts that haven't been published. There's all sorts of legal dangers with mm. that as well as anything else. So, mm. but also I don't feel I'm qualified. How do I know if your book's good enough to be published? I'm not a publisher. I'm mm. just a writer. And um, I I don't know. I just feel because I'm constantly in that process of learning, um, I don't have the right to give people advice either. I seek it still. <laughs> mm. So, um yeah, I think that's an ongoing process too. And I worry that, look, I, I want to keep learning till I die. Yeah, because when you've mastered something or when you feel you've mastered something, is it time to move on to something else? Maybe. Yeah. Do we ever really master anything? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, don't, think, um, I don't think mastery means that. I don't think mastery means perfection. Oh, okay. Yes. Fair point. Yes. Okay. You're just good at really good at it. Yeah. I mean, okay. Let's, so if I were to think about the year, the decades I spent trying to get a technique that would allow me to express music, however I felt it, as opposed to being limited by what, by what my technique could allow. Um, it took me decades. Mm-hmm. And finally, within the scope of my own voice and you can only work with what you've got Mm. right but I felt like yes I have mastered technique now and I can do what I want to do or express the music as I feel it um, as opposed to compromising the expression for lack of a a, a complete enough technique Um, and that's not to say that I wouldn't keep working on it and I wouldn't keep just like, you know, you look at Roger Federer right up until his last match. He was still picking out the little things that he thought, oh, I can improve that a little bit. I can improve that. A little. Oh, I might be able to tweak that. I mean, you know, and, and as your body changes, as, as for you, Karen, I imagine, you know, the readers who've been with you, who you, who you fear um, kind of failing, you feel to might disappoint on their, or disappointing. Uh, I imagine they grow with you too through reading, you know. So it's kind of, I, I, I just, I just wonder when we've found a voice and we don't want to um, disappoint. Um, it's almost like saying maybe we're all growing together. What am I trying to say? Oh, I know what you're way. saying. Yeah, I have to allow them. I mean, and and readers are generous. They really are. Mm. But I've also been in that situation where I've read an author's, say, 10 books, and I get to their 11th, and I think, where are you? What what, what have you done? You know, and and I feel disappointed. And I guess so I would never tell them. And I don't utter it publicly either. Um, No, that's not true. I did with one review. But I did it really generously. 
Yeah. And um, and subsequently, the book after that, well, all the books after that have been absolutely sensational. I won't say who the author is, except to say that they're hugely famous and my review meant nothing. You know what I mean? <laughs> no, no, seriously. Um, they are so world famous and, and, and you know, got mil- literally millions of, of readers. And that's just it. You, you, you just shouldn't. That if you're going to criticise any writer, just do it to one of them where, you know, one, <laughs> one lost sale won't matter. But um, mind you, it might, you know, they might That's be the like me and see that one. <laughs> yes, chances are, right? <laughs> you Look, know? Who, who's that damn Aussie chick? Who does she think she is? Yeah, yeah. So, oh, um, oh, wow. Okay, she really, she really nailed my fear there. Okay, she was right. Okay, that's an indication that maybe, I mean, who knows? But yeah. Who knows, yeah. No, but I did it generously and I did it constructively because, again, it was with a body of knowledge of her earth. Oh, I've just revealed it was a female author. And um, and also reading in that genre very, very heavily. It's my fa- one of my favourite go-to genres. I'll say it's mm. crime. I love crime books. Mm. Yeah, mm. really good crime book. Yeah, yeah. 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 So, so tell me, um, when you're coming up with a, a, a new book or coming up with, I don't even know how, how it happens. So I don't know the words to use when, when you're, when a new book is kind of germinating. Oh, that's lovely. Oh, I like that. <laughs> I water it lots. <laughs> um, how do you find your way into it? Or is that kind of a, a romantic way of looking at it? Is it just a matter of sitting down and thinking, right, <laughs> I'm going to write, um, have many words today. And I, I, I mean, how, what's your process? What's your process? Well, that is such a great, do you know what? Um, okay. When there's, they're two separate questions in a way, because my process is very different to how I come up with the books. Mm. Okay. When I, I'll tell you a funny story. When I, I'd written my historical fantasies and, and the last one I did, which I believe they're coming, they're being republished this year, which is really exciting. Mm. But so they were from quite a few years ago and I started to write another adult fantasy and I sent the first few chapters to my agent and she's wonderful and she phones me up, right, and she says, Karen, 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 it's really, the writing's beautiful, the story I can tell will be fabulous, but I hate the main character. What a stupid bitch. Why did she leave the baby in the car? (laughs) It's it, it's a, look, it's, it's more complex than that. But anyway, I was so taken aback. And she said, look, you're, you're, the way you write the history is beautiful. She said, forget the fantasy, Karen. Just write your history. You love your history. Why don't you write a historical fiction? So I was feeling quite despondent this day. And my sister arrived from Sydney and I took her to a very famous bar on the waterfront here in Hobart and to do a whiskey tasting. And I'd done it not so long ago. You get a little flight of all these different whiskies. And I said to her and her friend who was over from America, you guys do it. I'll be designated walker because we could walk down from where I live. And um, so they were having it. I was listening to this husky voiced girl give her talk on whiskey. And I don't know why. It was like you were saying when you go off on a tangent, you know, and my brain's wandering all over the place. I'm looking around this bar and I'm watching her and she's behind taps, beer taps, while she's talking about the whiskey. And I remember thinking, you know, it's funny, isn't it? You only ever see male brewers around. But somewhere in my memory, I remember that females used to do all the brewing. And I said, Bex, because that was her name. I said, Bex, isn't it the case that women used to always be the brewers? And she said, yeah, yeah, I think it was, Karen. Anyway, suddenly this whole story started to pour into my head. I didn't hear anything else that was said. Didn't notice my sister and a friend were getting 
really cup shot and really drunk. And um, they staggered out of there. And all I could do, I turned to my sister and said, I've just had the best idea for a novel. So that's how that came about, The Brewer's Tale. And that then involved a whole lot of research. So I, had, I knew how it began and I knew how it ended. That was all I knew. That's all I ever know. And then my process is pretty much the same for every novel. I take it very, very seriously. I dress for work every day. So don't always wear makeup or anything, but I don't write in my pajamas. I write here where you see me in front of mm -hmm. the computer. I have two screens now. Um, I used to only have one big one, but I've subsequently moved to two screens. Um, and I work for six to eight hours every day. And I try to have a word limit that I work to, but sometimes I get there and sometimes I surpass it. And I've learned not to beat myself up when I don't make it. And then the next day I go back and I reread what I wrote the day before. And sometimes it's utter rubbish and it ends up mostly getting deleted. And sometimes I go, wow, did I write that? <laughs> Hope I can do it again today. <laughs> and um, yeah, and so gradually the novel evolves. But um, as I said, I, I guess I get to know the characters as I write. I have an mm -hmm. idea of what I want them to be. I'm finding that harder as I get older, I think because you're quite naive when you start writing, even though you've read loads and that. And um, I, I realise my backstories, I have to know them better of my characters, but probably I'm worrying about that too much. You know, because mm. we meet a person like we meet, I don't know your backstory, you only know bits of mine. You know, well, I know a bit of yours too, but um, we don't understand all our complexities and you don't always need to reveal those in a book either. I think when you present someone in a particular way, it's lovely for the reader to be given that scope to imagine mm. some of the background as well. Yes. So they're, they're what, there's the difference between, I think it was Roland Barthes used to call a readerly and a writerly text. And I guess what, what that means is a readerly text, I think this is the right way to do it, is one where the reader's allowed to imagine um, things. It's where maybe you don't completely reveal what happens to a minor character. So the reader's allowed to maybe take that off the page and think about mm. what might have happened or like I said, more complex things about a person's background, the suggestions will be there to allow you to think. A writerly text, whereas everything's sort of done, all the work's done for you. I think in publishing and in writing, we call it the difference between show and tell. You're discouraged from telling as a writer, you're encouraged to show. And an example of that is if I said to you, as she walked into the room, her red dress swirled around her ankles. How tall was she, Sally? Was she tall or short? In my mind, she's tall. Right. What colour hair? Black. Right. Was she coming from home or from work? From home. What colour were her shoes? Red. Yeah. See? You, <laughs> I, I didn't need to do any of that for you. So whereas if I'd written the tall the tall woman with the red shoes had just mm. come from work because she, you know, it, it, yeah, that's mm. telling. You don't need to do it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you take me back, Karen, to when I was a kid and you know, that, that shift from storybooks to more words and bigger chapters and, you know, that exciting sort of shift. <laughs> and I remember going through a phase where I, I felt really irritated by there being illustrations because I felt like it took away my <laughs> my um you know sort of freedom to imagine <laughs> yeah. I know what you mean and it's also isn't it that transition from children's book to adult books adult books didn't have pictures you know? <laughs> I know what you mean though and and yes I 
I'm really thingy. I don't like um, full faces on my book covers. Mm. There's only, um, there's been a couple of exceptions and they've been outstanding, I have to say. <laughs> but um, I get why a lot of publishers, for example, put the backs of women or side on views. And again, that's showing, not telling. Because yeah. we all sort of imagine what the hero or heroine looks like. And I know that's why a lot of the erotic fiction and the, the complete opposite, and even the romantic fiction, have the, the beautiful bare-chested men or the glorious, young, perfect women, you know, on the covers. And that, that you know, I, I get that too. That works for that genre as well. But, yeah, I prefer not to have that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. Show as Don't opposed tell. to... Or writerly and readerly text. Writerly yeah. and readerly. Yeah. That's... Do, do you feel like um, do you feel like you get to know yourself better as you're getting to know your characters? Oh, wow. I think you must because you explore, you plume the depths of human nature. Mm. And because I sometimes write about real historical figures, well, I always have real historical figures in my book, but um, I have to imagine what they must have been like as human beings on the basis of what we know about them in history. So I always describe it as putting creative flesh on history's dry bones. And, um, but you give these people that you read about in two dimensions on the page, um, three dimensions, you give them emotions and dialogue. And, and some of them, we've got their letters, their poems, their artwork. That's, that's quite wonderful. And it gives you scope and you can really dive in. But yeah, I think it, I do get to know myself better. Um, but I wish it improved me. <laughs> I, wish, I, I wish I could say that happened. But um, you know it doesn't. That's the thing we don't know. We're us. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I am what I am, as I used to say. Um, but I, I think it makes me more tolerant and understanding. I like to think I've always had those levels at certain things. But um, stupidity is hard to tolerate when it's willful ignorance. I mean, you know, and I'm not talking about lack of education or anything like that. I'm talking about. Um, other kinds of stupidities or ignorance and that that's hard but I like to think the more I read and the more I learn I'm becoming I'm coming I still don't like it but I come to understand where it arises from and that that does make you more tolerant yeah mm. so and um gosh we're, we're taking the what wonderful leaps here so so sorry. willful stu no I love it. it's great willful stupidity how do we know that it's willful in somebody else well, I think it's because it's what we also call confirmation bias. And this is, we, it's so easy to do in these days mm. where people only seek out knowledge that confirms their own beliefs. Right. Okay. Part of the thing about learning is actually going to places that, that challenge what you think and feel and looking. And that's where rather than opinion, you do go to experts, you know, don't just read some wanker <laughs> who, who writes something about vaccines or climate change that has no basis in fact or draws on a study that was done by four scientists out of you know um 400 and mm. and goes against what the other 96 percent said or whatever you know what i mean and yeah. and that that's where but 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 again that's willful ignorance or willful stupidity but i also see why it happens because that's fear that's fear and remember i said part of courage is to acknowledge your fear and push through it and go with mm. it but but mm. still go ahead and um I mean anger comes from fear often too you know people get angry because they're really fundamentally afraid and it might be even afraid of their own emotions and losing control but um yeah so I, I think I think that's what I mean by willful stupidity that that just refusal that that stubbornness 
to see someone else's point of view, even when it's someone who's spent 10 years honing something or 20 years or 30 years, you know, yeah. and written hundreds of papers and been out mm. there. You know, mm. people, people don't believe David Attenborough. Disbelieve David. Oh, sorry, don't disbelieve David Attenborough, you know, when he tells us certain things. And I, I wonder sometimes it's because his manner of the telling is so beautiful and mm. so beguiling and compelling. Mm. But it's also, you know, a truth-telling. And if we turn our eyes to the truth, then we're living a falsehood. And that concerns me deeply. Mm. Yeah. Um, I was just reminded of something that you said when we when we first were chatting before before we actually hit record and it's that sense as we get older I was just thinking of, of you know Attenborough and um and his extraordinary contribution and he's an elderly man now yes and um we were referring to that sense of feeling diminished as we get older and I've been actually speaking to a few of my older friends about this recently um and I, I thought it was a female thing, but it's not. No. It happens to men as well. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, they're still given status and um, they're accorded wisdom that I think is slower to come to women. I mean, one of the people I respected most in my life was my grandmother. She survived the Holocaust. She um, came here with nothing, um, you know, really worked hard and made an amazing life. And she she uh, was educated. Well, she, she gave herself a really fantastic education spoke five languages she was just an extraordinary woman but um she also noted that you know how difficult it was to age as a woman and I often say to my friends I love getting older I hate aging and I had a milestone birthday last year I turned 60 and um I've I've noticed that um diminishing how you're literally literally overlooked Mm. Um, in certain spaces and it's quite confronting and you know you've got to lose your ego a little bit or maybe we shouldn't and maybe we need to stand up and be counted and um, I remember reading an article that a friend sent just before before Christmas I think it was in the conversation and it said you know when you're spending time with your older relatives at Christmas interview them like an anthropologist and I thought, oh, that's a bit corny, you know, and then I read it and I got what they meant. They meant that so often we just take older people for granted and we don't actually talk to them and, and find out how interesting and rich and, and yeah. fascinating their lives were and all the different things they've done. Now, I've been doing that for a while now, so this was not new to me. And part of that is because my biggest regret is I didn't do it earlier and I didn't find out more about my grandmother Mm. And my, my own mother, too, who died quite some time ago now, because um, she also had an extraordinary life and was an immigrant and everything. And I just think um, I wish I wish I'd I'd, I'd done that, but being the anthropologist this person talked about. And I think that programs like on the ABC, you know, that old people's home for four year olds and old people's home for yes. teenagers. They're just beautiful, beautiful shows. And they really show how. We tend to live in silos in certain ages in our society, but it's so important to build bridges. And part of the way to do that is through dialogue and talking and communicating and maybe interviewing older people like anthropologists. But um, I don't know whether this invisibility is because we accept it when we're older. Um, we take that for granted and maybe we've got to stop. And what's lovely is more and more in society now you are seeing older men and women 
who are still vital, amazing contributors like mm. David Attenborough, who's in his 90s, I believe. Mm. You know, so hopefully yeah. that's going to change too because I know now when, when I was in my late teens, 20s, I thought when I turned 40, I'd have a perm and purple hair. And I don't mean the fabulous, vibrant purple that <laughs> some people walk, men and women walk around with today. I mean that that wishy-washy, you know, it's still beautiful, the that rinse. lilac, that, yeah, the rinse, that's right, and I'd wear moo-moos. And, you know, and here I am at 60, you know, and, and nothing like that. And I hope I'm never like that. Um, for me, I mean, some people might want that. And you go, you go, you do that. Again, men and women, if you want to have that lilac rinse and wear moo-moos, you go for it. But, um, yeah, I love that. See, that's about choice, going back to choice. Mm. You know, mm. when... Again, I am white and middle class, so I have a lot more choice. I have an education. I'm very fortunate, you know. Mm. I've always had a good life. I've, I've done it tough too, but um, not, not, you know, not. It's all relative. But yeah. Um, yeah. now, now I have that freedom to make those choices. Yeah. And hell, I'm not wearing a muumu. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, a couple of years ago, I I went to train as a camelia in the Simpson Desert, right? I was a trainee camelia. Wow. And I, I remember saying to my friend who helped facilitate this experience, who's an amazing adventurer, explorer, um, just curious person. Um, she's just incredible. Anyway, I said to her, oh, I'm just not as fit as I used to be. And I just, I just don't know. And, I, I, and here he was in my late 40s. And she said, Sal, the, our oldest camellia just turned 100. And I thought, oh, well, that changes the parameters here a bit. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Well, gosh, that's amazing. Yeah. And I thought, you know, our perceptions of ourselves as we age, you know, our ideas around ageing shape the way we age, shape what we do. Totally. I mean, of course, our, our body's not going to, you know, work in the same way as when we're 20, when we're 80, of course. But um you know, there's all that research around this now, the people who have positive um, perceptions of ageing, who think of, you know, wiry people, wisdom, you know, you know, energy and um, not caring what people think, you know, positive sorts of um, yeah. ideas around ageing, they tend to age like that. <laughs> yeah, it's so true. It's so true. And, um, you know, and, and surround yourself by people of all ages, and I have to say where I live, um, and I've lived in lots of places in Australia and, and overseas for a bit too, I have never lived anywhere where age to a degree doesn't matter as much. Now, I, when I was talking about being invisible and being overlooked, it mostly doesn't happen in the in the place I live, Hobart um, and Tasmania. It, it is just incredible. I can go out into a restaurant. Um, I haven't been to a nightclub for a long time, but a pub or anything. And we own down here, um, my husband and I, a, a brewstillery, a brewery distillery. And the now maybe it's because I'm the old chick behind the bar when I call <laughs> beers, but people are lovely whether they're 18 or yeah. 88, you know, and just so accommodating. And I see groups of people sitting together of all ages and they're, and that keeps you vital and engaged and interested. And I'm not interested in being young again, but I, it's again what I said, but, but young at heart in that desire to learn and have new experiences. That that's probably what I mean by young at heart. But gosh, I, we should invent a new phrase and just say being 
I don't know, being older at heart and still wanting to embrace all that too, but age appropriately as in don't go and break your back or your legs or yeah, yeah. yeah. Or, or your liver, ruin your liver. Yeah. Yeah. My grandmother was so funny talking about, you know, and she was in her 80s and she'd talk about the old girls at tennis <laughs> and she was actually older than the old girls she was talking about. I, my grandmother did Meals on Wheels at a Jewish people's home in Sydney and that was when she was in her 80s and she invited me to go with her a few times and some of the people she was serving meals to were young, uh, well, yeah, were younger than her and yet you would never have known my grandmother was the age she was. She was just mm. incredible up, up until the end, you know. And for someone who, who lived through what she lived through, I just by chance read Viktor Frankl's three oh. lectures just following you know, within months, not even a year after his uh, liberation from, it wasn't Auschwitz, it was um, not Birkenau, it was Buchenwald, I think. Buchenwald, which is where my great-grandparents were. Well, my really? great-grandfather died there, yeah, yeah. Right. Um, and no, 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 sorry, he didn't. He died in Theresienstadt. Him and my um, great-uncle were interred in Buchenwald before they were, my um, yeah, great-grandfather great-grandmother were uh, moved to Theresienstadt where they died. Right. But yes, that, that was in search of meaning, isn't that the book in search of meaning? Is that um, no? Is that, this is so. Yeah. So it's different, and I think it was only published for the first time um, a couple of years ago. But it really, it's though it's the three lectures um, that he gave. He may already. I'm not sure if he'd already written the book or if the book happened later. But it's right. called um, "Say Yes to Life in Spite of Everything." Okay, I'm going to write that down. Say yes to life in spite of everything. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, just the, he, in, I mean, it fascinated me. What I hadn't realised was that when he was a student counsellor before um, the Holocaust happened, he was already putting together um, suicide prevention programs for the students because even back then, see, I didn't, I didn't, I thought there was so much more pressure on students now. <laughs> but even back then, in the 1930s, students would take their lives when they didn't get the, the result, the exam results that they that they wanted. And he put together these, these programs. And so his whole experience following that actually um, the, the the ideas weren't from his experience in Auschwitz. They came I mean, in in the concentration camps. They came from before then. Um, but his whole experience through that period, then, um, it, I, I mean, his ability to keep his mind in a place where he could cope with those experiences. Cope with those. What do I even mean by that? But um, what I just want an example. <laughs> An incredible know, person, human being, yeah. And and I think of and and he's not the only one. Look at your grandmother, who then went on to be of service to yeah. other people. And yeah. Um, yeah, I'm going to reread them. <laughs> They're those yeah. sorts of lectures. But yeah, what were you about to say? Kara? No, I was saying um his logotherapy that he came yeah. up with. That that's I think how he explained how he was able to, I guess, <laughs> cope. I don't know what other word to use. Yes, with what. The, the, and, the dreadful situation that yeah horror. yeah and his way of sort of describing that was um well it's a it's a, a therapy of sort of finding meaning yeah and words isn't it through words through yeah yeah and, and, and the words yeah carry weight yeah 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 um 
just to move away from we could go off on a a very rich I'm just wondering two things um back to your writing when you firstly do you do you consciously do anything to cultivate your imagination or does it just happen because of the way you look at the world (laughs) so there's that question and also if you sit down for your six or eight hours I think you said eight hours at the desk and you just don't feel inspired at all (laughs) then what do you do wow okay I think I think life cultivates your imagination and certainly reading other people's books whether they're non-fiction or fiction I read the papers um, I love interacting with other people, not, not when I'm working. <laughs> I'm very antisocial. But um, when it, there's a sort of joke in the family that if a tradesperson comes to the house or you know, even the post, post person, um, you know, they have to sort of, oh, my, uh, Karen, Karen. You know, <laughs> Forget about the dogs. Yeah, Forget yeah. about the poodles. And, Watch out yeah, for Karen. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and my, my um, husband will sometimes say, Karen, they're on the clock. You know, so... Um, <laughs> So sometimes I do crave human company. Yeah, my poor dogs get here for my two bichons. Sorry, there's two down there and the Labradoodles that work with my husband and the two cats around. So we've got five fur babies. But um, I, that's other people, uh, I find them endlessly fascinating and relationships endlessly fascinating, whether it's between a politician and their constituents, whether it's in a, a marriage, a friendship, motherhood and fatherhood, you know, kids and parents, all that, absolutely fascinating. So I think I'm a bit like a bowbird or a sponge. I just soak it all up. And look, all the beautiful narrative music I find inspiration. I listen to music as I write oh. um, of the era, of the era I'm writing oh. in. So at the moment, because I'm copy editing a book in the 1600s, I'm listening to a lot of Purcell mm. and people like that. Um, and then... Oh, artwork all that sort of poetry but then um okay you're talking about essentially writer's block aren't you if I sit down and nothing comes Uh, honestly I wasn't thinking of it in those terms um uh, only because I don't get it I don't get it well yeah I mean I wasn't uh, yeah I no do you know what I've um, worked out and that's not because I'm exceptional or anything like that it's because, and it's not because my imagination is this endless well or cornucopia that just keeps renewing itself. I realise when I can't write or when the words, and sometimes it's like squeezing bloody toothpaste out of an empty tube, you know, it's really hard to get anything. I've gone in the wrong direction. Ah. So I go back a few chapters or even a few words or lines if it's just the beginning of a book. Usually I can get the beginning down quite quickly because I've been yep. thinking about it for so long. Um, and then just you know kickstart again so sometimes my delete file I have a delete file for every book is as long as the finished product so the delete file for the book that's coming out this year is over a hundred thousand words is it longer than the book itself no (laughs) I don't want to say how long the book is it's a bloody opus I'm trying to cut words out now (laughs) ah and so it's coming out late this year are you able to yeah. In July, okay. Are you able to tell us anything else about yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can tell okay. you, um, and I, I'm, I'll be able to share the cover soon. I've seen a draft cover, and it is bloody awesome. I thought <laughs> the Good Wife of Bath, 
Um, they couldn't beat that, but they got the same designer and she's Michaela Alciano, I think her surname is. She's just extraordinary. I'm, I, I burst into tears when I saw it. Anyway, um, it's called The Escapades of Tribulation Johnson. And you'll appreciate this because it's set around restoration theatre. So it's about when actresses were first on the stage in England because up until Charles II came back to the throne in 1660, women were not allowed to perform. Men always played female roles. This book starts in 1679. So by now women have been on the stage for 19 years. And it's about a young woman named Tribulation Johnston who, for various reasons, is forced to go to London and live with a cousin she's never met. Her cousin happens to be the infamous playwright who's a real historical figure called Afra Ben. And Afra Ben is one of those women who was sort of elided from history for centuries and criticised and disparaged and put down even when she was at the height of her career. She was the first female playwright to write, English playwright to write for money, to write for bread. And yet, again, she was excluded. She also really wrote the first English novel, probably around 30 to 40 years before, um, was it Daniel Defoe or Jonathan Swift acclaimed Mm. as the first novelist? So she actually did. And she was an abolitionist and just this amazing woman. And yeah, so there's lots of, um, she was a spy, she was a, a pamphleteer, she was all wow. sorts of things, yeah. So anyway, Afra, about Afra Ben. Afra Ben, isn't it a great name? A-F-R-A-B-E-N. A-P-H-R-A-B-E-H-N. Oh. Yeah, but her maiden name was Johnson, hence the connection to tribulation. So it's about them and it's about how tribulation is taken under Afra's wing at a time in England when the, a thing called the popish plot, popish plot, which was true, um, was at its height. And that was when this incredibly awful human being named Titus Oates, you can't make these names up, can you? <laughs> Titus Oates, who was a former priest who invented this plot whereby he said that all these Catholics, and he was a former priest, so they thought he knows, um, he said there was this plot to assassinate the king and he started pointing the finger at all these quite powerful Catholic people. And all these non-Catholics, Protestants, got behind him because they saw it as a swift way to get rid of potential political rivals. So it was a time of executions, of fear, of real tragedy. And during this, um, yeah, the, 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 what is it? The play must go on. So the show must go on. So it's sort of right. along those lines, yeah. Oh, goody. That just, wow, that sounds so exciting, so gripping. And I hope so. I've loved writing it. I've absolutely loved writing it, yeah. How much time do you spend researching um, as opposed to writing, getting it, getting your, you know, story down? Yeah, um, I usually, because they all overlap. So, for mm. example, I'm doing a copy edit, and a copy edit's the last time. I've already done an edit with, with, a, with a proper editor. A copy edit's when it comes back, and it's mainly grammatical, but also your last chance to make any major changes because then it goes to page proofs. So even while I was waiting, I'd already started writing my next book. So while I'm doing the finishing touches of this one, I was already finishing the research for my next book, which is called Kindred Spirits. And it's about whiskey smuggling in Scotland, which was huge during um, the late 1700s and the clearances, the Highland clearances. So that's a fascinating piece of history. And women's role in in that, because they're often not spoken about, but they were very much part of it. Yeah. Um, yeah, so a great learning curve for that too. So 
I spent about two years researching um, and, yeah, and then the writing begins. So I have to have, um, this book, Tribulation Johnson, comes out in July. I have to submit the manuscript for Kindred Spirits in September this year. So I've got probably about um, a sixth of that book written. So I'll go straight back into it as soon as um, Tribulation Johnson goes back to the publisher. Yeah. So they're all they're always overlapping. Yeah. yeah. I already know what I want the book after that to be. So, oh, really? Yeah. Again, uh, inspiration, uh, reading a newspaper article of all things, I went, oh, my God, I didn't know about that. Just some line that was a throwaway line in a newspaper article. So I went in a deep dive down that rabbit hole and yeah. found something really interesting. Yeah. Gosh, that's, that's, yeah, I, I, my assumption had been had, that when you're working on one book, that's the only world you could in, inhabit. But I suppose when, when you're at different stages with different stories and you know each of the, each of the stories so well and the characters so well, you can just, Skip. I can. Uh, I can only move on when I know them well. I couldn't start writing or thinking about kindred spirits, even the research, until I really had done a very early first draft of Tribulation Johnson. Right. And even then, I kept fiddling with it and fiddling with it because it was far too long, and um, there were parts I wasn't quite happy with. So I had to keep putting down the Scottish research because, again, that's a hundred years. Like I keep saying, I'm I'm so foolish. I I keep writing books in completely different periods. <laughs> And I just wish I was, I could just stick to one period and know it really well, but I get too curious about something and have to explore. Yeah. Yeah. Just following your curiosity. I think it's absolutely wonderful. And I'm so grateful to you, Karen, for sharing all your, your thoughts and your ideas and your, and your, oh, you're going to hate me saying this. <laughs> you're inspiring the way curiosity leads you and not only that but the work ethic the discipline involved the you know knowing where to go when you hit an obstacle or a barrier um I've I've even though I didn't think of you know not being able to come up with inspiration I didn't think of that as writer's block but just your understanding of how, what that is for you it's actually a signpost that yeah, you're going in the wrong direction lovely, yeah lovely way to put it a signpost I mean I <sighs> That's not to say I don't have days where I just don't want to get out of bed and I'm really despondent. Like I said, I, I, I've been feeling, I keep getting um, waves of dreadful doubt, which can be really soul crushing. And, um, you know, anyone who's had depression before, and which I have had a um, few times knows what that's like. And I work really hard to, I guess, wade my way out of that um, quicksand of, of malaise and sadness you know and um, as I say crippling self-doubt but um, you, you do get there and part of the reason you do that is again it, I'm not on my own I have an amazing amazing family and support network of friends and um, and lovely people like you who are interested in what I do and pull you know remind me there's a bigger world out there because it is it's very solitary mm. isn't it this yeah. kind of work yeah yeah absolutely yeah. and so obviously where I will post uh, people who are listening to this as a podcast, um, I will be posting um, some, you know, websites and ways you can follow Karen in the um, in the body of of the copy here. But Karen, for people who are listening, um, can you just what's your main website? Oh, do you know what's not? It's not as up to date as it should be. Um, I've had problems with it. Um, I need I need a new web person. Um, or, or Facebook? Is it yeah, Facebook's Facebook better. Facebook author page. It's just Karen Brooks author page. Okay. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. and then I'm on Instagram as I think it's K Brooks sixteen sixty two. You know what? Because Karen Brooks is such a boring name, you have to come up with all these other tags and bits and bobs <laughs> because um, there's there's many of us out there. Yeah. yeah. Well, Sally Wilson's a similar. <laughs> Great <But>, name. <laughs> But really, Karen, you've been so generous and um, and also, you know, allowing us to get a sense of just just your your humanness, your beingness. Um, you're very courageous and and I appreciate it. And I know listeners and watchers will be, too. So thank you oh, again, thank Karen. You. No, thank you. So thank you for your wonderful questions for for asking me to be here and you know giving me the time it's lovely and thank you to your listeners and, and watchers too yeah. yes thank you uh, listeners and watchers for joining us and um and we'll look forward to being with you on the waves next time thanks everyone bye bye Karen. bye <laughs>